Good morning. Uh, my name is Jake Rogers, and I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church at Dumfries. If this is your first time with us today, I want to welcome you. I'm super glad you're here. And if this is not your first time here, I want to welcome you too. And I'm equally glad that you are here as well. Um, over the summer, we did a sermon series that we titled Greatest Hits, and kind of the idea behind the series was that there's like passages in the Bible that we're pretty familiar with, and a lot of the times we would equate like a hit song to the passage in the Bible and kind of look at the way that those two related to each other and kind of what we could learn from that. And while that's no longer the series that we're in right now, if we were, I think the song that talks about like, I can't get no satisfaction, right? Like that would be a perfect song for us to talk about today. But since we're not in that series, we're not going to talk about that. But instead, what we're going to talk about is what this series is titled, uh, which is Under the Sun, right? And if you were here last week, you heard Colby talk about this phrase that we see repeated in the book of Ecclesiastes about living under the sun. And this was a phrase that the author uh, repeats throughout the book, really referencing what it is like to live in the reality in which we exist. And really what the book of Ecclesiastes does throughout is it calls us to reckon with this reality, which often can be disappointing and leave us dissatisfied or unfulfilled as we look to the world around us to provide us things that it was really never designed to provide us. And so that's what we're going to be diving into and talking about today. As we do that, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles or your phone, I encourage you to turn there. We're going to actually end up reading through the entire chapter, so it's not going to be up on the screen. So I think it's really important that if you're able, you go ahead and turn there so that you can follow along. But as you do that, uh, and as we look at this reckoning with the reality of the world around us, there are some alarming statistics that show us how difficult that reality can be to live within. For example, in July of 2023, the National Institute of Mental Health published a study and it defined a major depressive episode as, quote, a period of at least two weeks when a person experienced a depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure in daily activities. And during this time, they had a majority of specified symptoms such as problems with sleep, eating, energy, concentration, or self-worth. And within this study, they reported that 21 million adults within the U.S., or two out of every 25 people, had experienced at least one major depressive episode during their lifetime. This number only increases when we look at the, or narrow it to the age range of 18 to 25, within which 18.6% of U.S. adults within that age range have experienced a major depressive episode. In May, Gallup published a different study which indicated that 29% of U.S. adults have been diagnosed with depression at some point in time in their life. And that represents an all-time high in diagnosed depression cases within the U.S. since we've started collecting data on that topic. Now, as we look at these numbers, and I look a little bit at my family's own experience with depression, the only conclusion that I can come to is that something in our world is broken. Something is obviously not right. The way in which the population of the United States has been taught and conditioned to find lasting joy, fulfillment, satisfaction, and meaning is not working. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to walk out of today having understated the role that the like, actual medical physiological causes uh, play in causing depression. 
it would be irresponsible for us to not recognize that uh, depression is a medical disorder that should be appropriately diagnosed, treated by a medical authority. And even in our own home, we have seen the benefits that can come from being able to um, pursue medical means to be able to address this disorder that we see affects millions of people across the United States. However, attributing this reality to only medical causes and not looking at what created these conditions, that would be equally as irresponsible because it would ignore the roots of the brokenness that brought about the condition that we see. It would ignore the fact that the depression that we see within our nation today is in some way tied to the effects that sin have upon our fallen world and this relationship that we have with the reality in which we exist as we search for these meaningful uh, sources of satisfaction, fulfillment, and meaning within this broken world that is around us. So as we look at this, this is really what the author of Ecclesiastes is going to be addressing and talking about in the chapter that we're going to be studying today. We see within the book someone who has searched all of the facets of this life that we experience in order to find something of true, meaningful, and lasting substance, but ultimately was left concluding that such a thing cannot be found among the things of this world. As we get ready to dive into the text, what the author wants us to come to grips with is that this reality of the world that surrounds us ultimately is not going to be able to provide us the satisfaction that we are looking for. And we're going to see in the main idea of this chapter is that our attempts at finding enduring satisfaction or meaning from life under the sun are ultimately going to be like striving after the wind. They're going to require a lot of effort and a lot of work, but ultimately they're going to lead to no lasting gain. And instead, they're only going to leave us disappointed, confused, and hopeless. But as we're going to see, there is another source that exists beyond the sun to which we can confidently look for for hope. So with that in mind, let's dive into our text in chapter 2. We're, like I said before, we're going to be starting in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2 reads, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity in a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who, who knows whether he will be, a wise or, will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity in a striving after the wind. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the goodness of your word, Lord. We thank you that you are holy, Lord that your ways are far above our ways, and that as we study this text, Lord, that we can trust in the hope that we have in you, Lord. We can trust in your goodness, your faithfulness, Lord. We can trust that you are a just yet merciful God, Lord. And I pray that as we examine this text, that that would just be revealed to us, Lord. I pray that during this time, you would increase, Lord, and all of the troubles that we have brought in today, the distractions, Lord, everything would decrease, that we would just be focused upon what you would have to say to us in this, that you would use your word to just strip away the areas of our life that we look for satisfaction and meaning apart from you, Lord, and that we would just be filled um, with the experience of your goodness, Lord, and that it would be to that that we look for our ultimate fulfillment, Lord. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, in this chapter in particular, can be difficult to understand, and if we're not careful, it can be difficult to apply, right? And so there's this danger that we could find ourselves misunderstanding what the author wants, us to, wants to say to us or applying it that's actually going to be contrary to the author's intent. 
So before we dive into and kind of break apart this text, what I want us to do is talk about and really be clear on some things that the author is not saying within the text. Now, as we study this chapter, it's critical that we understand that the author is not saying that nothing we experience in this life is capable about uh, bringing feelings of satisfaction, fulfillment, or meaning. When he says that these things are vanity, he's not saying that all of them are bad things when examined in isolation. In fact, as we see within the text, uh, some of these things actually do bring moments or seasons of satisfaction or pleasure, and that they're actually better than pursuing their alternatives. However, when the author says that they're vanity, or uses this Hebrew word that we talked about last week, hevel, he is saying that they are like a vapor or smoke, and that they lack true substance, and that they do not last. Now, I want you to think about smoke for a second. You're sitting around a campfire, uh, there's smoke in the air, it's something that you can see. If you are downwind of it and you start breathing it in, you realize that like smoke is a real thing and it can have actual effects upon you as a person. But if you were to reach out to try to grab it, to try to capture it, to be able to hold onto it in your hand, you would find that it slips through your fingers and dissipates because it lacks any true or lasting substance. This is how the author wants us to think about as we consider all of the things in this world in which we seek fulfillment and satisfaction, which the author is going to refer to as being, quote, under the sun. He wants us to think about these things that we're seeking satisfaction in as hevel or this vapor that isn't going to endure, isn't going to last, and ultimately isn't going to provide that substantive satisfaction that we seek. Now, additionally, what the author is not saying is that we have no hope at all as we walk through and experience the realities of this life. He's not saying that there is nothing that exists that is of true, enduring, lasting substance and gain. He's simply saying that it is not going to be found in the things whose existence is found solely in this temporal world. So now that we know what the author is saying, let's take a look uh, at what he does say and how he gets us to this ultimate conclusion. We see in this passage, the author, Solomon, taking us on a journey as he ultimately recounts his exploration of life as he is seeking this enduring satisfaction of, under the sun. And then he walks us through his response to the reality that such satisfaction and meaning cannot be found. Along the way, what we're going to see is that he's going to point out some things that can and will be some temporary satisfaction or gain. But in the end, he is going to conclude that even these things quickly disappear. And the experience of them is not certain as access to them can only be given by God. Therefore, they too are going to prove to be a vapor or hevel. However, it is at this point when we are going to be most desperate for the author to provide us some good news about how we can ensure that we experience some level of meaningful satisfaction and fulfillment in this life under the sun, that the author is going to show us that really there is none to be found. But yet there is hope that is going to exist, and that does exist beyond the sun. So if we look back to last week, the author left us with this overall idea that all is vanity or hevel. And he gave us examples within the natural world that demonstrate his point. 
He then gave us a taste of the journey uh, that he desires to take us on as he examined his testing of wisdom and the th- uh, as a thing that can provide enduring substance and gain. But ultimately, he concluded that wisdom fails to provide this and that it too is hevel. So as we pick up in chapter 2 today, the author is really just continuing this journey that he took us on beginning in chapter 1 by showing us three other areas within his life that he looked for in order to find this enduring satisfaction or gain. And what the author wants us to see is that in order for us to find true gain, we must first experience the hevel or the vapor-like quality of our worldly pursuits. He wants to take us on a journey and show us that he has tried everything that there is to try under the sun, that he has done it with more resources, more fervor, and more wisdom than any of us are ever going to possess. And yet, even with all of these things, he still was not able to find any enduring gain within it. Now, the place where the author starts is by looking at what your Bibles may describe as self-indulgence, but what I like to think of a little more accurately as the author's efforts to build for himself what looks to me to be like the equivalent of the Hebrew-American dream. We see in verse 3 that the author seeks to find enduring satisfaction first in substance use in the form of wine, And then through pursuing what he calls folly, which is just this overarching term for all of the things that we desire, even though we know that ultimately at the end of the day, they're not the things that are going to be good for us. I like to think of this period of pursuing folly uh, and investing in this substance use as the author's kind of like colloquial college years. And then after he looks for these things and he sees that they don't satisfy him, he then continues his search uh, by doing what all of us probably did after college. He got a job and then ultimately he went to get a house. And we see in verse 4 that he undertakes these, quote, great works, which included houses, vineyards, gardens, and parks, and fruit trees. And then he realizes that like all of these things that he has built and that he has established are quickly going to disappear if he doesn't build the infrastructure to support them. So in a way, he recognizes the vapor-like quality or the hevel of all that he has gained. And he tries to actually push back on that hevel by investing more in the things of this world to help solidify or allow him to hold on to all that he has gained. He does that by building this irrigation system or what he refers to as these pools of water in the hope that he can sustain the great creation that he has developed. Now, once he's got this great place, he obviously is going to need a staff to maintain it. So that's what he does in verse 7. And then just like he did with the parks and the orchard, the author realizes that if he doesn't try to create this self-sustaining system, that everything he has is someday going to disappear. So he creates a way for this system of slaves that he has to begin to sustain itself by ensuring that the slaves we reproduce so that uh, he is continually gaining these, these fresh laborers. Now, once he's checked that box, he goes into industry and he builds these great flocks and herds to provide food for his household and to allow him to accumulate this great sense of wealth. This allows him to acquire vast amounts of wealth and turn these potential gains into realized gains in the forms of silver and gold. And he ultimately concludes that he has more and has collected more than anyone who came before him was able to collect. But still, he's not satisfied. Even though he has this huge estate, this self-sustaining system of laborers, a massive industrial empire, and has amassed huge sums of wealth, 
he decides it's time to continue progress up his hierarchy of needs, and he decides to invest in the arts. He gets entertainers, which he says come in the form of singers, but still, this does not satisfy him. He has other desires for companionship and intimacy, so he acquires concubines to satisfy these desires. Now, at this point, we see that like he has it all. This guy puts the celebrities of our day and age to shame. He has reached what we would define as the pinnacle of worldly existence. He's got money, property, companies, servants, art, women. To put it in the vernacular of some of the younger crowd that is in here today, he is him. And if you don't understand that, ask your kids about it. You're too young to get, or old to get that joke anyway. What more could he possibly want? Surely, with all of these things, he's going to find some sense and satisfaction in all that he has. Now, for some of you in here today, this has been your experience so far in life. You think, my life's going pretty well. I have money, possessions. I enjoy my job. I have good relationships. I feel satisfied and fulfilled. And I think that if he were here today, Solomon's reply to you would be, he would look at you and he would say, just wait. We must remember that essentially what the book of Ecclesiastes is, is a memoir. It's Solomon reflecting back on the totality of his life and telling us what he has learned through it. But for us in here, in this room, we're not at the end of the story yet. Some of us are a little bit closer to others, right? Like those that didn't get the joke, probably closer to the end than those of us that did right? But what Solomon wants us to see through his experience is that he's tried everything that there is to try, and that given enough time, it all evaporated anyway. You see, when the author stops and examines all that he has built and acquired, and the work that it took to make this expansive empire, he ultimately concludes in verse 11 that it all was vanity, hevel. It all was a vapor. None of it would last. He concluded that the possessions and experiences that he had amassed were one day going to fade away. All of it would slip through his fingers. The house would collapse. The water would dry up. The parks and the orchards would die. The laborers would die or leave. The flocks would be gone. The money would run out. The wine would just end in a hangover. The singing would be old and the sex would no longer satisfy. And even if these things had lasted for the rest of his life, eventually he would die. And he had acquired no lasting or enduring or eternal gain from any of it. And the same is true of our lives as we seek satisfaction in these things. So after realizing that the achievement of the dream life could not provide him with true gain, the author then continues his search. And we see that as we begin looking in verse 12, this time turning to the ideas of wisdom and folly to provide this satisfaction. He examines whether living a life of wisdom or a life of foolishness, foolishness can provide him the gain that he seeks. And as he does, he actually comes to an interesting conclusion. He decides that living wisely is in fact better than living as a fool, comparing it to someone who lives in the light by someone who is in darkness. Now, from this word picture, we see the author make the argument that it's better to live wisely than foolishly because at least those who live wisely can see clearly as they navigate through life under the sun. 
acting upon some level of understanding of how the world works and what is needed to get to where they want to go. Whereas for the fool, they're unable to see, unable to understand how life under the sun works and how to get to the destination that it is that they seek. However, despite deciding that to live with wisdom is superior to living foolishly, the author still ultimately reaches the same conclusion that he came to before, which is that living with wisdom is still just a vapor. It is still hevel. Sure, the author would say living wisely might generate some type of short-term benefit, but in the long run, we all face the same harsh reality that the author alludes to in verses 14 and 15, the reality of death. This is what the author is referring to when he states that what happens to the fool will happen to me also. He's talking about the reality that both the foolish and the wise one day are going to die. And in light of that truth, all of the worldly benefit that they gain through wise living will in an instant turn into a vapor, will become hevel. Now, some of you say, but what about the legacy that is left by those who live wisely? What about the legacy that is left by those who live meaningful lives that contribute to or help others? Doesn't that matter? Won't they endure? Well, the author addresses that as well. We see in verse 16 that he says, For both the wise and the foolish, quote, There is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. Or put in other words uh, of the great American poet Macklemore, he said, I heard you die twice, once when they bury you in the grave, and the second time is the last time that somebody mentions your name. So what we see here is that eventually even those who live wise lives will someday be forgotten. I think that Solomon would respond to any objections to this statement about how society has enshrined and ensure that we remember certain people with the simple response of just keep waiting. Eventually, they will be forgotten and consumed by the long arc of history, just as I have. Right, for a lot of us in here, and I know for a lot of people outside these doors, if you went up to them and you asked them, who was the wisest person to have ever lived? Their answer would likely not have been Solomon. So even he, who possessed more wisdom than anyone who came before him, and than many who came after him, even he has faded into obscurity. So he comes to this conclusion that while wisdom is good, ultimately it is not going to provide us the lasting and enduring gain that we seek. So how do we summarize what the author concludes about the true value of wisdom? Well, it is better to be, wise, or to be uh, wise than it is to be foolish, but wisdom itself will still not provide us any true or enduring gain. It too is going to prove to be hevel. So with that in mind, we see Solomon continue his search. This time by turning and looking at the work itself as the potential source of satisfaction, fulfillment, or gain. But this time, he doesn't wait to tell us his conclusion at the end of this journey of seeking fulfillment through work. Instead, he puts it right up front by telling us in verse 18 that he, quote, hated all his toil in which he had toiled under the sun. And why does he say that he hates it? Well, essentially, it's for the same reason that he sees wisdom as providing no lasting gain. Because eventually, he's going to die. And then what does all of that work or toil profit him. 
But even beyond that, not only does his toil not profit him while he is alive, but he shows us that there is no guarantee that it will profit those who receive its fruits after his death. Here, Solomon confronts another one of our objections about the conclusion that he reaches about life here under the sun, which is that we may not get to fully enjoy or experience the possessions that we accumulate, but we think that maybe through our labor, future generations can enjoy or benefit from it. But we see Solomon's response in verse 19. He points out that when you die, those who inherit your estate may not be wise. They may, in fact, be a fool. They might waste all of it which is going to be completely outside of your control. And when they they do inevitably waste it all away and all that you have worked to accumulate over the years is spent and gone, it all will too have proven to be a vapor, to be hevel. And it will have provided no meaningful or enduring gain. And worse than that, not only is the temporary gain from all of our labors here under the sun going to prove to be this vapor that is quickly going to evaporate, but we also see that what we receive from our labors is sleepless nights. It's long days. It's what we see in verse 23. It's a sorrow and a vexation to us. Now, surely here in the national capital region, we can understand this. Surely we have seen this in our own lives and careers. As we labor and toil tirelessly, only to be rewarded with frustration, as we seem to deal with the same problems day after day after day, and then stay up at night worrying what needs to be done the next day or how we are going to provide for ourselves and our families, surely then we can understand that there is no gain in the toil that we have here under the sun. Instead, it is a sorrowful and confusing labor in which we engage. So the author argues this truth about our work also contributes to it being hevel, this vapor that fails to provide this meaningful satisfaction, fulfillment, or gain. So as we look at and we consider this section of verses all together, what we see is that worldly pleasures, wise living, and work all fail to provide the enduring gain that we seek. Now your response may be, well, that's actually really depressing. And the author of Ecclesiastes would respond to you by saying, yeah, it is. Look at the author's response to these truths in verse 21. He says that this truth causes him to give his heart up to despair. And we need to give ourselves the space to come to grips with and accept the reality within which we live. We are often too quick to attempt to look away, to distract ourselves, to find some sort of silver lining or come up with some sort of like catchy cliche that makes us feel better about the reality in which we live here under the sun. But the danger that we face in doing that is that we take too lightly the disappointment that awaits us here in this life. We take too lightly the fact that we are not going to find that which we were created to long for amongst anything that we experience here under the sun. And because we do not give ourselves the time to reckon with these realities, we find ourselves satisfied with just a mere taste, a vapor, a smoke of the thing that we were designed to truly have and experience. 
Now, some of you who've been paying attention might say, Jake, but what about the good things? Doesn't the author point out things in this passage, like the enjoyment that he gets from doing work and the benefit of living wisely? And I say to you, you're right. There are good things that the author points out in this passage that we experience within this life that are able to provide us a temporary sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. But what the author shows us in verses 24 through 26 is that we can't control having access to or experiencing any of those things. Ultimately, through this section of verses in 24 through 26, the author seeks to show us that as we seek that which can provide true gain, we must first be exposed to the hevel or the vapor-like quality of seeking God's gifts through a transactional relationship. What we see in verse 24 is this point where it feels like the author has reached a point of exasperation that possibly leads to this uh, sense of fatalistic clarity. We observe this sentiment that since everything the author has tried to use to find enduring satisfaction or gain has turned out to be hevel, we should simply enjoy the gifts are available to us since that is all that there is. And what is interesting is that the items that he identifies as being, quote, better are in fact good things. All of the things that he lists are gifts from God that were given to us prior to the fall. They're not things that we experience as a result of sin, but that, we were, that were given to us to be enjoyed before sin had ever entered into the world. We can look back in Genesis 1.28 and see that as soon as God makes man, he gives him a job. He sets him to work laboring or toiling within the creation that God has made. We can see in this that the labor or the toil that man originally was given is in fact a good thing and that we can find some temporary sense of satisfaction or fulfillment from the labor that we expend here on this earth. Furthermore, we see in Genesis that uh, God says that man can eat of all of the fruits of the garden. So in stating this, we see that eating and drinking are ways that we can find some sort of temporary sense of satisfaction as they were given to us and designed by God to be a gift that we experience here within creation. So in stating that these things are better, we see that the author is essentially saying that they are, there are good things in this world that were given and designed by God to be enjoyed as a part of his creation. But... The meaningful and satisfying qualities are of those is not going to last. Now, we may be tempted as we hear that these are good things that were given to us as gifts by God to say, finally, here it is. Here is the hope that I've been longing to experience since we started the study of this book last week. Now that we've gotten here, let's hurry up, let's pray, let's get out of here so that I can get on with my Sunday where I plan to go and experience God's good gifts by going out to lunch and finding pleasure in the toil of my favorite football team. But verse 24 doesn't end there. It doesn't end with this list of things that are better. Verse 24 doesn't put this happy bow on things and end the chapter with this idea of experiencing and being happy with the things that are, quote, better. The chapter goes on. And the author makes a statement at the end of verse 24 that continues through verse 26 about something else other than these gifts that also come from the hand of God. That is other than these eating and drinking and finding enjoyment in our toil. 
And what it is that we see in verse 24 and continuing on through verse 25 is that this other thing that God gives along with these gifts is the ability to access and enjoy the gifts. We see through this rhetorical question that is given in verse 25 where the author asks, for apart from him, referring to God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment, we see from this that the answer is obviously no one. And this shows us that God is the giver of gifts as well as the giver of enjoyment. And we can't access either one of those things without God himself being at work. It doesn't rely upon us. Now you may say, Jake, what about verse 26? Doesn't it say that those things are given to those who please God? Doesn't that mean that if I work to obey God, if I try to follow his law and live as a good person, like we are told to do, that he will give me this gift? Doesn't it tell us that as I put in the work, surely God will be the one who grants me these rewards? But the problem with that line of thinking, the text tells us, is this. It tells us that to the one who pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. So, we think that in the text, we just need to be the one who pleases God. We say, if it is an A plus B equals C equation, if I please God, then God will give me the gifts and the ability to enjoyment, and then I can find meaningful and enduring satisfaction under the sun. But the problem with that line of thinking is the reality that we are not the one who pleases God. We are the sinner. We are unable to please God on our own through our own efforts and resources that we possess here under the sun. For all have sinned and fall short. We have broken God's law. We have not obeyed. We have not pleased God. We have rebelled. So just like Solomon pointed out in chapter one, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of, uh, of man to be busy with. And we see here what that business is. It's the business of gathering and collecting only to have all that we have gathered and collected turn into a vapor as it slips through our fingers. Only to have it become this mist that quickly fades away. Only to have it prove to be hevel all along. Sure, there are good gifts to be enjoyed, but even those eventually are going to fade away. Even those will fail to have enduring substance or value, and access to those gifts lies beyond our control, for it is from God's hand that they are given and not by our own. So any attempt to craft this transactional relationship with God where we obey and he gives us the gifts we desire is going to fail because we haven't obeyed. So now what do we do with this? We get to the end of this argument that the author makes and we probably ask ourselves questions like, why is it this way? If everything that we experience here under the sun is ultimately going to prove to be a vapor, is going to be hevel, and will fail to produce any lasting gain, and if it's God who made it to be that way, then what do we do? Well, I think the first thing that we have to do is come to terms with this reality. We need to recognize that this is just how it is, and this was how it was made to be. 
We shift from merely having a fall theology to having a cursed theology. We recognize that the reality in which we live is under the complete control and sovereignty of God who laid a curse on all of creation in response to sin and did so with a purpose in mind. We stop trying to rush through the uncomfortable truths that we encounter within the book of Ecclesiastes and instead we recognize and accept that this is how it is as we experience our lives here under the sun. And then once we have done that, we turn to closely examine where you have, been, where you have placed your hope for that enduring fulfillment, satisfaction, and gain. I firmly believe that all of us in here have areas or things in our life we have placed a larger portion of our hope to find true, lasting fulfillment and gain than we are comfortable admitting. For some of us, it's in our possessions or in our wealth. For some, it's the life experiences that we're able to achieve. For others, it's our kids. It's the hope that we can give this all to the next generation better than we received it and find our fulfillment in them. For some, it's our careers, our toil. Maybe it's the way we live. We look at how we live and we say, I live a life of greater wisdom, of greater value than other people. I uphold a moral code or don't do those foolish things that other do, others do. So surely I will experience truly enduring gain. For some of you, it may be substances. Others, it's relationships. Whatever it is for you, we all have those things in our life and we need to take the time to truly stop and consider what they are and how much of our hope for fulfillment we have placed within those things. Otherwise, we're going to watch them slip through our tightly grasped fingers despite all of our best efforts. And then, because that is where our hope is rooted, we are going to find ourselves devastated by their loss. Now, once we identify those areas in our life where our hope for enduring gain truly lies, the next thing that we have to do, the next way that we must respond is to cease our search for gain under the sun. Now, let me talk to those of you who are in here who are in the military real quick, especially my Marines in the room. I want you to think about the number of people in your life who when their time in the military or the Marine Corps came to an end, felt that they lost their sense of meaning or direction within the world. The number of people who the day that they left that community that told them what it is to value, what it is that they were supposed to do, what it is that defined who they are, suddenly realized that they had no hope. That everything that they had built up over the last 20, 30 years was nothing but a vapor. That the day that they left that organization, the organization didn't miss them. It moved on. And they were left thinking that they held this thing of value, that in a moment, the day they went and they picked up that paper, walked out the doors to never put on a uniform again, it all turned into a vapor. We need to reckon with this reality. We need to recognize that someday all of those things that we are placing our hope in to define us, to give us a sense of fulfillment, of joy, and of true gain are ultimately going to one day melt away. So as we see this, as we experience the fact that experiences are going to end, 
Children are going to grow up and move out. Our relationships are going to end for a myriad of reasons. And the things that once satisfied us no longer do. We're going to be left asking, what do I do now? Is there any true gain to be found? And it's finally here. When we come to this point of recognizing that there is no gain to be found here under the sun that we can finally see the good news. It's here in this question of whether there is any true gain to be found that we can find an answer. And we see that answer. It comes written from Paul in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, where we see Paul declare, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Here we have this raw and powerful declaration by the Apostle Paul that points us to the hope for gain that we do have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What Paul is not expressing here is this sense of Christian fatalism that says that the only hope that we have for gain is death, so we might as well just end it now. Instead, what Paul is saying and what the author of Ecclesiastes points us to at the end of the chapter is that we must cling to the enduring gain that we find in the one who does please God. For while there is no enduring gain to be found here under the sun, there is eternal gain that can be found in the sun. Jesus is the one in Ecclesiastes 2.26 who pleases God. And in him, all of the vapors, all of the smoke, all of the hevels of this world are redeemed and are given meaning and can endure. Because as we see in Ephesians 1, God in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time unites all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus is the one who pleases God. To him, all has been given, and in him we see that the redemption of all things in the, uh, in the source of enduring substance or gain. In Christ, we see that wisdom is redeemed because as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, Jesus becomes the wisdom of God to us and he endures forever. In Jesus, the worldly pleasures that are gifts from God are redeemed as they are no longer the focus of our lives that we rely upon to be our ultimate gain, but we are able to acknowledge them as gifts that come from the hand of God and are given, as we see in Matthew 6, as we seek first not the gifts of God, but the kingdom of God. We see here in Philippians 1 and in our scripture reading earlier today in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus in his death and resurrection redeem our toil as it is transformed into fruitful labor or labor that is not in vain because it invests in the kingdom that does not end and that is not going to prove to be a vapor but that is enduring. So there is hope. There is lasting gain to be found. But it's not in anything that we can find here under the sun. It is only in the person and work of Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. 
in order to pay the price for our sin, but was raised again and now rules at the right hand of God and has offered us not only the payment for our sin, but his own righteousness, which we receive by placing our faith in him. And we respond to that truth by coming to terms with the reality that lasting gain cannot and will be not found here under the sun. So we need to cease our searching for it, closely examine our lives to see where our hope for that enduring gain currently lies and then identify and shift that hope so that it solely rests in Jesus and his kingdom. Now in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to partake in communion. And I encourage you, if you are someone who has placed your faith in Christ, to join us during this time as we remember the work of Christ on the cross. As he pleased God by obediently giving himself as a sacrifice. Breaking his flesh and giving his blood so that we could find our enduring gain in him. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have designed and purposed throughout the fullness of time to gather and to join all things beneath your Son. We thank you that in this world we find no gain as it points us to the lasting gain that we can have and that we find in you. And so I pray that as we seek to examine our own lives that you would open our eyes to the areas in our life where our hope for that gain currently lies. That you would be in work, uh, at work in us, Lord, through your word and through this community um, to just expose those areas, Lord. Uh, and that we would be able to cease our striving to find our hope there, Lord, that it would rest solely on the word of your son and that we would be transformed and changed through that that we would be a people of hope a people um, who have experienced uh, and live out the gain that we have in you we pray these things in the name of your son